I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, they could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me you make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jet on Mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is use every eighth episode of this podcast to talk about Smallville. You see, boys and girls, I follow a pretty simple formula for my show, when you really think about it. There are six episodes where I talk about pretty much anything I want. The seventh episode is basically intended for me to team up with Chris Honeywell and just talk to uh, talk about weird stuff. And then the eighth episode is all about Smallville, like I say. And after that, I start all over again with another six episodes about anything I want, a seventh episode with Honeywell, another Smallville episode, and so on. Now, about a year ago, I started working my way through what you might call Smallville Phase 2. Because if you wanted, you could view the first three seasons of the show as Smallville Phase 1. Smallville Phase 2 starts with the dreaded fourth season and then goes right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. Now, when it comes to the fifth season of the show, which is what I'm talking about currently, Guys, my Smallville fandom was hanging from a very small thread, all right? When this show was first starting up and and coming out, the pain of the dreaded season four, well, let's just say it didn't go away very easily. In fact, it's really only been in the past few years that I've been able to enjoy the fifth season of the show. And that's because a lot of progress gets made during the fifth season. Now, the first season of Smallville contained a lot of universe building. In fact, 
you could argue that the first season contained too much universe building. Season one had maybe a a bit too much emphasis on plot as opposed to character, and I've outlined reasons as to why that might be when I was working my way through my season one retrospective, so I guess if you're interested in answers on that, go back and check those episodes out. But the point is that Clark could usually be assumed to be all or mostly in the right during the first season. If Clark says something or does something, for the most part, that's the right thing for him to have said or done. Not always, but usually. Still, that got cast completely aside in the second season, and for the first time, the viewers were allowed to see Clark and his struggles against his own fallibility. I think it could be argued that his virtually flawless decision-making processes in the first season kinda sorta lulled him into a false sense of security. And so because of that, and possibly because his world had begun changing around him, Clark was usually caught off guard by people, situations, and general life in the second season. During the Mighty Season 3, Clark frequently had to live with the consequences of his decisions. If he screwed up, the aftermath of his stupidity was real, lasting, and usually harmful. If he fucked up at something or made the wrong call, he rarely got a second chance. He either got it right the first time or else he didn't get it right at all. And as his relationship with Alicia Baker shows, even when he got another chance, he still fucked up. Getting into the dreaded season four, the idea that Al Goff and Miles Miller had was to lighten the mood of Smallville as a TV show. The Mighty Season 3 has a lot going for it, but at the same time, it got a little dark in places. And so part of the agenda for the dreaded Season 4 was to brighten things up a little bit. But another issue was, was showing Clark's growing sense of independence. He made a lot of mistakes in the second season, and then he had to live with the consequences of those decisions during the Mighty Season 3. So. During the dreaded season four, Clark had nowhere to go but up. But more than that, he was finally coming into a stage in life where he'd seen himself at his worst and at his best. He understood by the time of the dreaded season four that his actions matter. And the fact is that he has to make decisions that literally nobody can help him with. For everything else I could say about the dreaded season four, and there's a lot, much of which isn't very good, at least Clark began to understand that his judgment is as fallible as anybody else's, but at the end of the day, he's the only one who can make the choices that he has to make. Now, as it relates to the fifth season, Clark decided to give up his powers in the episode Arrival, which is to say the fifth season premiere. And that decision is totally understandable considering all the bullshit that he's been through during the life of the show up to that time. But what he discovered is he needs his powers. But more importantly, the town of Smallville needs him to have them. They need him to have his powers. 
Two whole episodes were spent on teaching Clark that lesson, people. But that's not all the fifth season's done so far. It's begun broadening Clark's horizons, and he started getting an idea that the challenges of the real world are a lot more complicated than he ever thought. But what Clark's learning in all this is that they're still right and they're still wrong. If Clark was a more bitter and jaded person, the events of the episode Exposed, which I talked about last time, would have destroyed him. But they didn't. Instead, Clark seized upon the victories that he was able to win during that episode. He was at least able to exonerate Jack Jennings. He arranged for Mr. Lyon's arrest by Interpol, and he solidified his relationship with Lois by saving her from being smuggled, uh, smuggled off in a human trafficking ring. Clark didn't allow himself to be overwhelmed by Jack's corruption or, or by Mr. Lyon getting away with tons of other crimes. Sometimes in life, all you can manage are the small victories, but back in season one, Clark wouldn't have been able to tolerate the events of Exposed, but what we're seeing here in the fifth season is a kind of older and kind of wiser Clark Kent scoring the victories that he can and not really worrying that he can't always perfectly deliver perfect justice perfectly every single time. What really counts in the end is that Clark puts a premium on friends, family, love, and loyalty. And those are the values that sustained him during Exposed as an episode. Another big issue, though, is Clark is still very much attached to his human life. Brainiac tried to drive a wedge between Clark and mankind two different ways in two different episodes, but each time, Brainiac was defeated because Clark wouldn't give up on his human life, and his human life wouldn't give up on him. Now, this is a positive issue. For now. But the time is going to come when Clark's commitment to the pretense of being human will be his greatest weakness. But for right now, that's the only thing that saved the world. Now, to move on to other things, I've said before that Smallville Phase 2 began with the dreaded Season 4. The start of, of Smallville Phase 2 is marked by Smallville as a show reaching its visual zenith. From the dreaded fourth season through the end of the sainted seventh season, Smallville had never looked this good before, and for the most part, it would never look this good again either. As an example, I point back to basically any of the Fortress of Soli uh, Solitude scenes from, from the fifth season. There's really nothing in the real world that resembles those Fortress of Solitude scenes, but they are gorgeous. Smallville's days as a relatively grounded show are firmly behind us now. From here on in, the series is going to become more and more fantasy-oriented as time goes by. That was true starting with the dreaded fourth season, and it gets reinforced this season, which is to say the fifth season, both in terms of story, but especially in terms of visuals and in terms of cinematography. Smallville Phase 2 got off to a rocky start with the dreaded Season 4, that much is true, but this is still Smallville's prime, and not just from an aesthetic standpoint either. Everything that makes Smallville awesome can be found 
in varying supplies from the dreaded fourth season going right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. Without question, Smallville Phase 2 is my favorite era of this show. And with the fifth season, we're finally talking about what I at least consider to be quality material. As a result, I'm a lot more excited about these Smallville retrospectives than I've ever been before. Now, before we move into the analysis proper, I've got just one other point that I need to remind you guys of. Some of you have noticed a pretty big difference in sound quality in these opening monologues as compared to the analysis section of these episodes. And as I've said before, the short answer for that is that these opening monologues sound a little bit better, at least in terms of audio quality, than the main portion of the show because of the fact that I recorded a lot of those a lot of these retrospectives ages and ages ago with this ancient rickety old USB headset that I used to have. But since that time, I've upgraded to a Turtle Beach gaming headset. And just in this opening monologue, you guys may hear the occasional little clicking sound. It sounds kind of like a mouse click. And that's my Turtle Beach headset. For some reason, it just makes a clicking sound. I don't know why. But the analysis portion of these episodes... The, that was all recorded, in some cases, years ago using an older headset. And so these opening monologues are typically the last thing that I record before I release these shows, hence the difference in sound quality. And now you know the rest of the story. Anyway, so that's that stuff. Now, last time I finished up uh, my comments uh, by talking about the episode Solitude. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville, Season 5, beginning with the episode Lexmas, after these messages. is Christopher Woolnatt with a very important message for you. Beware of monsters. Yes, friend, beware of monsters. International best-selling author Jeremy Robinson, along with BewareOfMonsters.com, feel this message is so important, they have commissioned me to start this podcast to get the word out. Please, beware of monsters. Each week, the Beware of Monsters podcast will talk to experts and authors about the monsters from film, literature, from comic books, video games, from any place we find them lurking. Beware of Monsters. You can find more information by searching Beware of Monsters in iTunes, your podcatcher program, or the RSS feed on BewareOfMonsters.com. This podcast is in its infancy, but you can join us now and watch it grow 
like a mad experiment in a secret lab in an underground bunker somewhere in New England as it gets out of control, consuming all around it in its mad quest to control the world. Friend, beware of monsters. Each week, presented by Jeremy Robinson and BewareOfMonsters.com. Hi, it's John Glover. Welcome to the Smallville Retrospective. I hope you guys have a good time and learn a lot about all of us. I'm back now and continuing my retrospective of Smallville's fifth season. Now, last time out, I mentioned that the running theme through the batch of episodes that I discussed was Clark's fallibility. And I guess to a degree, that includes the illusions that he willfully lives under. That shifts in a big bad way in this run of episodes because we get another chance to see that Clark and Lex are on parallel journeys with one another. They face similar circumstances at times in this run of episodes, but they make very different decisions. Yes, I think it'd be fair to say that they both make the wrong decisions, but they still make different decisions from one another and ultimately... That's what matters. But anyway, first up comes episode nine, Lexmas. Twas the night before Christmas and Santa was soused, and so not a present got delivered, not to one single house. With electoral victory now in sight, Lex Luthor, with his head still bare, fervently hoped that election night soon would be there. But then the motherfucker gets shot. Lexmas has a lot in common with The Family Man, the Nicolas Cage movie. In that movie, The Family Man, Cage plays a billionaire captain of industry who gets a glimpse of the middle-class married life that he turned his back on back when he was younger. He gets a taste of it in the movie, and then he has to let it go. I tend to view the deeper themes and implications of Lexmas very differently than I do that of The Family Man. Lex dreams that he's married to Lana. They have a middle-class house in the middle-class suburbs, living happily ever after middle-class type of lives ever since Lex forfeited the state senate race to Jonathan Kent seven years earlier. Meanwhile, Clark's married to Chloe, and not because that makes any sense at all, but because the Warner Brothers movie division had forbidden Goff and Miller to even suggest a romance between Lois and Clark. Well, Allison Mack is the only other female member of the cast who doesn't have some kind of family relation to Clark, and so that's who Clark kind of had to end up with in Lex's dream sequence. Anyway, Lillian Luther is Lex's guide in all of this, showing him the life that he could lead if he chooses to take it. All he has to do is forfeit the state senate race 
to Jonathan. In effect, Lex needs to turn his back on power in order to attain love. So here Lex is free from Lionel. Disowned, really. He's happily married to Lana. He has kids. He and Clark are friends again. He's a personal hero to Chloe. He's completely rehabilitated his public image. Jonathan Kent regards Lex more or less as a son now. And basically, Lex's life is better than anything he could have ever possibly hoped for. It all ends with a bitter confrontation with Lionel, who refuses to help Lana and she dies a horrible death. But otherwise, this whole sequence that Lex is living through is a dream come true for him. You know, except for the whole dead Lana angle. And really, Lex is the only one who sees that as a bad thing. But I'll spare you that. Now, Lex snaps out of it eventually, and then he chooses the dark side. That's true. Much like Ebenezer Scrooge, I realize that what I want more than anything is to live happily ever after. And you know what the secret to living happily ever after is? Power. Money. And power. See, once you have those two things, you can secure everything else. And keep it that way. So what am I doing here, Lex? I want you to pull the pin on that grenade. Find it, fake it. Do whatever it takes to knock Jonathan Kent out of the race. I want to be senator. I want it all. Consider it done. familiar with the next couple of episodes, the effects of Lexmas and Lex's decision may not seem immediately apparent. Now, I won't spoil anything other than to say that it's hard to square Lex's choice for the dark side here in Lexmas with his actions in the immediate future. Still, the political operative he's working with is called Griff. We're going to be seeing Griff again before too long, but what you need to remember is that there's a broader point that's being made here. Lex makes his choice. He makes it right here in Lexmas, in fact. I just included the audio not only of his decision, but also his rationale. And then you need to remember that the only thing that Lex really lost in his alternate reality dream world was Lana. That's as far into it as we need to go right now, otherwise it does get spoilery. But just remember that Lex's decision is motivated primarily by Lana. Lex was shown basically all of his dreams coming true. I mean, yeah, he's not ridiculously wealthy anymore, but he's happy. Everything he ever wanted in his life in that alternate reality has come true for him. And to a degree, that even includes Lana. 
Now, yeah, he ends up losing her during childbirth, sure, but he had her. He chose her, and she chose him. They loved each other, and they had a lot of good years together. There are millions of ways anybody can die. And that alternate reality dream? Lana died as a happy woman, surrounded by her friends and family. And honestly, that's more than most people can hope for. And Lex single-handedly made all of that possible. But it's not enough. It's not enough to love and then lose. Lex wants it, and then he wants to keep it. Forever. Because of that, here in Lexmas, he willingly abandons the life he'll spend the rest of his days fantasizing about. He stakes everything, up to and including his soul, that he can have both powerful wealth and Lana, in spite of all the mounting evidence that it's going to be either one or the other. As Lex stares contentedly out his hospital window at the end of the episode, basking in his decision, the ghost of Lillian Luther cries and fades away as she watches what's left of her son throw his life into the toilet. And dude, that is dark! Before that joyful moment, though, Lex bitches Lionel out for risking his life by immediately putting him into surgery. Only because Lionel couldn't bear to have a cripple for a son. This is interesting because Lex faced a similar circumstance with Lionel back in Vortex from Season 2, where operating immediately posed a major risk to Lionel's health. When faced with the decision, both Luthers chose to operate on the other one immediately. So, heavy shit all around. Anyway, moving away from the higher analysis of stuff, Chloe guilt trips Clark into doing Toys for Tots deliveries. And so, what follows is a, it's just a really sweet and kind of schmaltzy bit where Clark hangs out with Santa Claus. And oddly enough, this actually le leads into my main problems with Lexus. I enjoy Lex's story here. I mean, how the hell could I not? It's sad and a little tragic, but at the same time, Lex is making a very informed decision. He's sympathetic, but not to the point where you lose sight of the fact that he's knowingly choosing evil. I also enjoy Clark's story. I mean, how the hell could I not? It's light and fun and festive and Christmassy, but at the same time, it never really gets lost in its own cheesiness. Clark's ever so slightly grinchy at first, but not to the point where he comes off like a total asshole. What I'm not as fond of is these two stories being paired together. The two stories have their share of mystical fairy tale elements, but there are different values motivating both of them. I don't think they're an effective combination with each other. Now, Unfortunately, I'm at a real loss to think up a decent alternative. Intercutting these stories shows just how much they really clash with one another, but if you were to pair them up as uninterrupted stories on their own inside of this one episode, the last emotion of this episode is either going to be bleaker than Lexmas as a total episode really is, or it'd be happier than Lexmas as an episode blah blah blah. And I'm also reminded of the fact that Goff and Miller, back, they said back in the Thirst commentary that 
The WB Network asked for themed episodes for both Halloween and Christmas. So who's to know what fiddlefuckery might have been going on behind the scenes? I can only judge the product that I've been given. And look, I dig Lexmas. But if you if you take nothing else away from this bullshit, I just I want you to be sure of that. But my point here is that I don't think the individual stories in Lexmas work they work to strengthen each other at all because there's this huge tonal clash between the two of them. Unfortunately, Lex's story already has three different tones going for it as it is. First, there's the operating room drama where surgeons race desperately to save Lex's life, where the footage has all those deep shadows and harsh bright lights and steely blue tones and all that stuff. Second, there's Lex's dream where up to a point, it's pretty light and airy. It's very dreamlike. The cinematography uh, emphasizes a sort of hazy quality to, to the visuals where whites are blown out and the softer colors in the, in the palette, they, they practically glow. Third, there's Lex's Anakin Skywalker moment where he chooses the dark side, which has a complete lack of colors apart from black, off-whites, deep blue, kind of diffused lighting, and shadows that stretch directly into hell. And then comes the Smallville version of the Tim Allen Santa Claus movies. And look, this shit just doesn't fit together very well. That's all I'm saying. Then as now, I'm apparently in the minority as most people hold Lexmas in very high esteem. And they tend not to notice how the various styles of the episode conflict with one another. And look, whatever, I'm not trying to ruin anything for those, for those people. And on top of that, those things really don't ruin the episode for me. I really enjoy Lexmas. But wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't at least make a note of all of this stuff. Anyway, I haven't said too much about the DVD commentaries that a lot of seasons have had, but I kind of do have a bone to pick here, inasmuch as I like Smallville DVD commentaries, and I see a real missed opportunity with Lexmas. There's commentary for Thirst, as well there should be. I mean, that makes sense. As fans, we deserved an explanation for that god-awful train wreck, and now we have one. But the other commentary applies to Splinter. And as good as Splinter is, I just don't think it's got the same historical significance to the show that Lexmas does. Usually, it's not my business to second-guess these things, but I seriously do think that somebody made the wrong call here. Now, excuse me while I get a drink off of my Sunkist. Hmm. So, other stuff. On a technical level, oftentimes this series depicts Lex with a completely bald head. The principle at work in Smallville seems to be that the meteor shower from the pilot episode caused Lex's hair to fall out at the roots. Now, let's be honest, the illusion has always been imperfect. Lex always has eye, eye, eyebrows, and if you look close, he's also got hair on his, on his hands and his arms. Now and then, you can even see some chest hair if his shirt isn't buttoned up right. But generally, 
his head is bald and that's the main thing. But the nature of TV is what it is. So every now and then, Michael Rosenbaum has stubble on his head. And sometimes that's more distracting than other times. When Lex and his son are out shopping for Christmas trees, it's obvious that Rosenbaum probably could have withstood another head shaving before filming. But that takes a long time to do, and there may not have been enough time in the schedule to do it, and so they just went ahead without shaving his head again. This is one of those times when it's especially uh, noticeable. Something else. At one point, Santa Claus falls off a rooftop, so Clark super speeds down the wall. At one point, while he's running in really slow motion, there's this really neat-looking overhead shot of Santa Claus falling and Clark running alongside him along the wall. Just before the shot cuts away to something else, both Clark and his speed trail just completely disappear. Now, normally I don't mention goofs like that because it doesn't really help anything, but I'm mentioning this one because it really is weird-looking, and I'm amazed that nobody from the production ever noticed it. I mean, shit, I'm amazed that none of the fans have ever noticed it either. I've never seen anybody else ever comment on this, but I swear it's in there. I'm not making this shit up. Anyway, so that's that. On to episode 10, Fanatic. Some of Lex's campaign staff are starting to view him the way cult members view their leaders. One of them even shaves her head and decides to murder Jonathan Kent to clear the way for Lex in the state senate race. In other news, Griff finds the grenade that he promised to bring back to Lex, back in Lexmas. Lionel reaches Griff first, though. He buys Griff's evidence and then burns it so that Lex can't have it. And it's later suggested that Lionel had Griff killed. It's never confirmed, though. But for the moment, let's assume that Lionel's guilty. He really did have Griff murdered. You might wonder how exactly that squares with Lionel being Jarrell's vessel. As I said back in the first part of the Season 5 retrospective, Lionel's morally a free agent. Jarrell is telling Lionel what to do. Lionel himself gets to decide how to do it. Anyway, other stuff. Jonathan fires his campaign manager and replaces him with Lois. And people want to seem to link those two events more closely than they should be linked. Jonathan fires his original campaign manager because he wasn't representing Jonathan's actual views. He's manufacturing a phony image of him and quoting Jonathan saying a bunch of bullshit that he doesn't even believe. That is why Jonathan fired the campaign manager. It was short notice, and the campaign's nearly over. Jonathan needs somebody to manage his campaign. Lois has shown a pretty savvy understanding of politicking and campaigning. She's young, she probably works cheap, and Jonathan may even figure this could be a good way to get her out of the talon, and thus off of Lex Luthor's payroll. People... They keep saying, again and again, this is a state senate seat. Jonathan's not campaigning for the United States Congress. 
it'd be kind of stupid to use unproven college kids as your consultant for federal elections. But a campaign with meager funding for a state Senate seat? Yeah, that seems about right. Maybe it's just because I've seen local elections like this up close and personal, but Smallville's presentation of it really isn't too far off. It's not as glamorous as Smallville makes it out to be, but hey, it's just a show. The mechanics of it, though, are pretty close to how races for state assembly seats actually do play out. There are other bits of business going on here, though. Some kind of interesting ones, in fact. I'm not sure if this counts for deeper themes and implications exactly, but Clark has a pretty awkward conversation with Chloe about his and Lana's sex life. So I know you didn't come by this late at night just to drop off this press release. What happened? How far do you want to cross this friendship boundary? (laughs) Since when did we have boundaries? All right. Why don't you just leave out the details? Well, everything was fine between Lana and I when I was human. I mean, it was great. Okay, Clark. But now that I have my abilities back, it's like our sex life has been on hiatus. Oh. Uh, I know I'm going to regret asking this question, but, um, why? Because it just takes some time for me to adjust my abilities to new situations. Wow. Uh, uh, awkward factor eight. Um, so basically what you're saying is that you're afraid that in the heat of the moment you might... Please don't make me finish this sentence, Clark. Well, see, that's the thing. I'm not sure what would happen. I couldn't control myself. Okay, you know what, Clark? Right there, that's something that can never be unseen. It's not funny. No, you're right, it's not. It's just that this conversation definitely cements me as your crypto hag. Look, Clark. You can shake my hand without crushing it, right? And you don't exactly incinerate everyone you look at with your heat vision thing. So it's pretty much the same thing, right? I mean, metaphorically. But you didn't need me to tell you all this, so what gives? I think I got used to lying to Lana when we were friends. Now it's different. Yeah. You know, Clark, I mean, I'm playing my best on defense, but I think you're in denial territory about what Lana knows. I mean, she's studying astronomy. The meteors, the fact that the undead topic comes up daily. I can't just tell her, it's too risky. Okay, fine, then don't tell her about it, but your game needs to switch from defense to offense, because sooner or later, Lana's gonna start asking all the wrong people all the right questions. Aside from a sort of fulfillment of that whole man of steel, woman of, of Kleenex thing, it's a mark not only of Clark's lack of trust in himself, but also of his faith in Chloe's friendship. I mean, let's face it, that's one hell of an awkward conversation. The other factor at work here, though, is Lana herself. Chloe says that she's closing in on the truth of the alien invasion from back in Arrival. From there, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to Clark's secret. Now, 
as ever, I won't spoil ahead for what's coming later on in the show, but people, this is big. In fact, this was a moment of epiphany for me in many ways. Throughout my years of Smallville fandom, I've always come down pretty hard on Lana. And let's face it, she's not really the most likable character in Smallville's entire repertoire, but at the same time, she's been a skeptic of Clark and all his bullshit since at least season two. And it's grown since then. It's to the point now where she's looking for answers independently of him and not trusting everything he tells her because she has good reason to believe that Clark always knows a lot more than he tells. Logically, this has resulted in Lana's independent investigation of Namek, Aether, the spaceship, astronomy, and other shit. And this is not an incidental plot point. This is going somewhere. Soon, in fact. Other stuff. There's a really cool sequence where Samantha Drake shoots Jonathan Kent in the middle of the rally, and Clark catches the bullet. Now, up to this point, Clark's always been very secretive about his powers. It's not enough that he pretends not to have powers. Oftentimes, he never even uses his powers if there's even a possibility that someone might see him in action. Even if the witness wouldn't even know what the hell they just saw, Clark has never risked his secret that way. But this time's different. This time, Clark catches the bullet in full view of an entire auditorium of people when the object of his rescue is the center of everyone's attention. And people, this is huge. Clark's never been willing to risk his secret being exposed for anything. But this time, the stakes are high enough, and he trusts himself enough to use his power to save Jonathan from the bullet. If this was the first season, Clark would have gone ahead with the rescue, even though he would have believed he'd out himself in the process. And who knows, he just might have outed himself. But Clark is so proficient with his powers now, and Jonathan's life was enough of an incentive that Clark took the risk of using super speed in front of an, in front of an entire auditorium full of people, in front of everyone, and had a pretty high level of confidence that he could do so without being seen. Still, Clark risked everything to save someone he loves. Everything. Again, this is huge. This is going to become a major issue. And not even all that long from now. Just how far is Clark willing to go to save the people that he cares about? We're going to find out not very long from now. Anyway. Some other stuff's happening here, too. After Clark catches the bullet, he storms the sniper's nest and finds that Lois has already taken Samantha down. Up to now, Clark and Lois have had a fairly contentious relationship. I don't think it'd be accurate to say that they dislike each other, but they bicker an awful lot. This is one of the first times, in fact, maybe the first time, that Lois uses her, her little flirty voice with Clark and maintains eye contact with him maybe a little bit longer than casual friends might. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. In fact, 
that leads neatly into what I think is this episode's, and really the state senate subplot's, main weak spot. The political parties are never identified explicitly, but I think it's pretty clear that Lex is the Republican and Jonathan is the Democrat. This was implicit for a long while before now, but this episode's where that all becomes just a little bit more prominent. Specifically, Jonathan expresses opposition to, shall we say, corporate concerns and the public trust before he fires his campaign chief. Before that, at the start of the episode, Jonathan makes a joke about his support for corn subsidies. Now, both of those things are traditionally Democrat issues. And people, keep in mind, this is not about whether I'm a Democrat or whether I'm not. It's about getting too specific with a fictional election. And I'm not the one who's getting political here. The show is. And the problem here is that someone out there may very well believe that farm subsidies do more harm than good. They may also believe that it's perfectly legitimate for heads of corporations to engage the political system considering the amount of regulations that their businesses are usually faced with. Now, it's one thing to mention that those issues are real and that they do exist. But the show, first, brings those issues up and then second, places the heroes and protagonists of the series supporting those policies. All well and good until a Republican fan of the show watches and then he's put in a very uncomfortable position. Now, I resent politicking of any kind in fiction because whether anybody wants to admit it or not, one set of policies will work while the other set of policies will not work. If Republican policies work, we need as many Republican policies as possible to get this country straightened out. On the other hand, if Democrat policies work, people, we need as many Democrat policies as possible to get this country straightened out. One of those will work. The other one not only won't work, but is probably the cause of most of our problems. Now, I made a decision about this long ago. I have an opinion on the matter, and if I was of a certain political viewpoint, aspects of Fanatic would have pissed me off a little bit. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Again, I will not mention which side I'm on because I fucking hate it when podcasters do that in their shows. You're all adults. You don't need me to tell you which side you shouldn't come down on. Or if you do, you shouldn't fucking vote at all. I'm just saying that I've got a point of view and politicking like this bugs me. My only point here is that this sort of thing has no place in entertainment. Even if it's the set of policies that I agree with, I still don't like political content in my entertainment media because it's leaving the other side out of what should be a story that anybody can enjoy. That's what I'm saying, and that's all I'm saying. So don't send me a bunch of angry emails because you think you know which side I'm on based on what I've said here. Because people, let me tell you something. You have no idea what my political viewpoints are. 
You can read my Facebook as much as you want. Trust me, you're not going to find my political point of view on my Facebook page. Anyway, speaking of corporate interests, Fanatic ends with Martha going to Lionel for a donation so that the Kent campaign can keep on going. Now, she does this in secret as she knows that Jonathan doesn't want to have anything to do with Lionel Luther. Next up's episode 11, Lockdown. Lex and Lana are trapped in Lex's panic room while Lex bleeds out from a gunshot wound. Big doings in this episode. Obvious and not so obvious. For one thing, hasta la vista, Sheriff Adams. And I gotta wonder, how many Smallville sheriffs have ever been killed in the line of duty? I mean, Sheriff Adams has kind of got to be a rarity when you think about it. Then again, how many Smallville sheriffs go down for obstruction of justice, evidence tampering, and two counts of attempted murder? So I guess Sheriff Ethan was probably a rarity too, but beyond all that stuff, Clark realizes that Lana's on the trail of the spaceship from Arrival. And by itself... That's not a major surprise since he'd already gotten hit by the clue by four earlier in the season. Now, what sets this apart is that Lana's still looking into it. She knows Clark's been stonewalling her, so she goes out on her own. The big surprise here is that Lex is helping her with it, feeding her diagrams of the ship and also doing other stuff. And Clark's shocked that Lana's kept this from him, but... Martha points out that Clark's been lying through his teeth uh, to her for five seasons and counting. And she knows it. So the fuck else was she supposed to do? Some good continuity comes up here in this scene with Martha as the truck that Clark wrecked back in Splinter can plainly be seen in, in the background. This is one of those things that sets up a lot of stuff at a glance. The Kents aren't rich. They can't just go out and buy a new truck to replace the one that got wrecked. So they had it towed back to the farm so that an insurance adjuster can look it over, probably total it, and then arrange for them to get a check from the insurance company. Now, you could have a three-minute-long scene that explains all of that bullshit forced into some episode, or you could just show the wreckage sitting, on the, sitting around on the farm and let the viewers fill in the blanks, and it plays for me, so... That's some good attention to detail here. And speaking of attention to detail... Lana's helping Lex study the black ship? She's got a detailed drawing from Luther Court. She's been lying to me for weeks. Well, you haven't exactly been honest with her either, Clark. Sometimes the truth isn't easy to share with the one you love, especially if you think it might hurt them. It's just everything was so perfect with Lana when I lost my abilities. Now that I have them back, all I do is lie to her about the ship, about why I keep... I just wish I could tell her. Well, I'm not saying you should, but Pete found out the truth, and Chloe, and they accepted you for who you are. Yeah, I'm an alien. No, as their friend, whom they love very much, no matter what star you were born under. She's not sure Lana's gonna feel the same way. Then maybe she's not the one you were meant to be with. Mom, I can't imagine ever loving anyone else. Hey, Swava. Mrs. Kent? So, Clark laments that he can't imagine 
loving anybody besides Lana just as Lois rolls up. I won't lie, I laughed the first time I saw that moment when this episode first aired. Now, one of the things the fifth season's tried to do is have fun with Chloe being in on Clark's secret. Anytime they're in a situation where they have to sneak around or do superhero stuff on the down low, there's always a lot of humor in it. Here in Lockdown, there's a sequence where Clark and Chloe attempt to infiltrate the hospital to get information that they need. Chloe comes up with an incredibly elaborate plan to get past the security guard, but Clark instead shakes the guard's coke up at super speed, and they watch it explode all over him. And then he leaves the station to clean himself up, which clears the way for him to get the videos they need without being interfered with. And that just... I don't know, I just... I like that sequence. It works for me. It's, it, it's fun. But beyond that, there's some interesting character stuff that's going on there. First... After saving Jonathan from Samantha in front of dozens, maybe hundreds of witnesses back in Fanatic, Clark obviously thinks absolutely nothing of sabotaging the security guard's coke. The other thing, though, is Chloe's creativity. She comes up with a very realistic and, and very plausible way to get past the security guard. It just would have taken forever to get that done. Chloe still isn't completely accustomed to working with a superhero. She's still getting used to having Clark around and not only being his confidant, but his sidekick too. Now, Clark's somewhat more accustomed to having a sidekick thanks to Pete being in on his secret, but this is all new territory for Chloe. She's still getting the hang of it, but she's doing a good, uh, a good job of it, I'd say. And going back to continuity for a second, Lex's home invaders are former deputies who survived the assault by uh, Namek and Aether back in Arrival. This is crucial to the plot because Lana eventually gets mixed up in their little stalemate. Lex eventually comes clean with Lana that the ship vanished without a trace a few weeks earlier. He never told Lana that, though, because he knew it'd rock her world. He says that he wanted her that he, that he wanted her help in solving the ship's mysteries because their lives had been so fucked up by the meteors and he wanted to know why. But he couldn't bring himself to tell her the complete truth. As far as Lana's concerned, this is where Lex sets himself apart from Clark, at least superficially. He lied to her, yes, but he lied in good faith. His goals ultimately extremely benevolent. Lana knows that Clark's sitting on information of some kind that might help her with the spaceship. He's lying right to her face, she knows it, and she doesn't know why. Lex lied to her face too, but the excuse he makes for it ultimately has her best interests in mind. This moment, and others like it, makes some of the choices that Lana makes later on easy to believe. She won't be entirely sympathetic, but she'll at least have valid reasons for doing some of the things that she does. And this is kind of a big deal for Lana. She had good reason to wash her hands of Lex Luthor forever after commencement, the finale from the dreaded fourth season, where he all but frisked her looking for the crystal of air. It became pretty clear that Lex didn't give a damn about her or her safety. All he wanted was the stone. For her to accept, first, a partnership with him, to research the spaceship, and then, here in lockdown, to call him her friend, 
is a big deal, at least on the surface. Lex is doing all the things that Clark isn't, superficially, and he's reaping the rewards for it. Chloe even busts Clark on some of this stuff by pointing out that Lana knows that Lex saved her life. She's got no idea that Clark rescued her from that exploding building, and so he doesn't get any points for the rescue. And speaking of the explosion, that's huge. Something really important comes out of that. I'll revisit this later, but we haven't heard the last of that exploding warehouse. Or for that matter, Clark rescuing Lana from it. Anyway, so Lana will always hold Clark at arm's length until she understands the truth about him. And again, I'm not a Lana fan, but this is a perfectly understandable reaction for her. Lex took a bullet for Lana. Clark looks like he's intentionally withheld information that he knows is important to her. Lana sees Clark walk up to Lex's hospital room and look like he just got kicked in the balls when he sees Lana hugging Lex, but honestly, what else is she supposed to do? The episode ends on a pretty ominous note. This is how things are always going to be. Forever. Until Lana knows Clark's secret. And that leads us to episode 12, Reckoning. Clark reveals his secret to Lana and proposes marriage, but she dies in a car crash, so Clark travels back through time to save her by not telling her a secret, but in the end, Jonathan Kent dies of a heart attack. So here we are. Episode 12 of the fifth season and episode 100 of the show overall. The hype for Reckoning was huge, and it promised that a main character who's been part of the show from the very start would leave this mortal coil, and it'd be permanent. No tradebacks. The premise is simple enough. Based on everything that's happened in previous episodes, Clark decides it's time to confess the truth to Lana. What follows is a pretty impressive sequence where Clark reveals his powers to Lana. On the one hand, it's probably everything he's ever wanted to do. But on the other hand, he's taking the risk that Lana will freak out and reject him, but obviously she doesn't. Still, sometimes there's really no deeper meaning to some things. Sometimes Smallville's just fun to watch, and the sequence where Clark sweeps Lana off her feet and super leaps through the fortress is just awesome. In fact, it raises the question of how much a super leap that really was. I don't want to get going into spoiler territory here, but obviously we haven't seen Clark fly when he's in his right mind, but at the same time, there's a trick to flying. Or maybe it's a philosophy, I don't know, but Clark has to reach a very specific state of mind in order to fly. And from the looks of it, he flew in the fortress. Not a super leap. Clark looks like he flew. I'll revisit this much later on, but I want you all to remember this. Anyway, so Clark's decision to tell Lana the truth in Reckoning didn't come out of nowhere. It's the product of the entire series with Lana constantly getting pushed aside by Clark's secret and honestly really starting to resent that. 
It's starting to threaten the long-term stability of their relationship, so Clark decided he had to take drastic action. He tells Lana the truth about his true heritage so that there won't be any more secrets to keep them apart. It's a good plan, but Clark just can't win for losing and reckoning. He comes clean with Lana, tells her everything, and on the surface, that should be a good thing, right? Honesty and openness. It's everything that Lana said she wanted. And for a while, it even works, too. Lana and Clark get to spend a day on equal footing with one another. Now, Clark maybe didn't tell Lana everything, because honestly, that'd take too long, but he hit the high points with her and probably would have filled in all the blanks once everything had settled down a little bit. But the point is that he trusted her with his secret, and he wasn't disappointed either. Lana was finally able to return his affections and truly accept him, I guess on an honest basis. The fact that Clark's an alien truly didn't bother her when all was said and done. It didn't change the way that she felt about him. She was able to love Clark all the more now that she understood why he's done the things that he's done. But in the end, Lana dies in a bloody, horrifying car crash specifically because Clark told her his secret. So he vows to go back in time and make different decisions. Now, a lot of people have criticized this. Why didn't Clark go back in time, still tell Lana his secret, but just be more protective of her? Still tell her the truth, you understand, but just make sure to keep a closer eye on her. I'll tell you why. That's not the way that Clark's psychology works. He thinks of his Kryptonian heritage as the dirty little secret that keeps intruding on and even ruining people's lives. It's caused so much pain and torment for others that he must have thought he'd won the lottery when Lana said that she loved him no matter what. But then she died, and it was because she knew his secret. Lana's death reaffirmed every bit of self-loathing that Clark's ever had. He reasons that if he makes the opposite choices in the second timeline, everything should work out fine. And that leads me to Jarrell. Lately, Jarrell's been content to let Clark make his own decisions and learn from his own mistakes. Originally, Jarrell tried to force Clark, bend him to his will. But that was then. This is now. And now, Jarrell doesn't necessarily tell Clark when he's making a bad decision. He simply enables Clark's learning curve. The second timeline shows that Lana was supposed to die that night. Whether she knew Clark's secret or not, it was Lana's destiny to die in that car crash on the bridge that night. But Clark never puts the pieces together on that, not even when it's too late. Back in the third season, Jarrell gave Jonathan superpowers so that he could bring Clark back home by force. Jonathan was always who, John, who Jarrell was gonna take from Clark. And honestly, it wasn't even gonna be Jarrell's choice. Clark made that choice back in season two, and Jonathan sealed the deal in season three. And in the episode hidden from this season, Jarrell simply warned Clark that time was running short. Clark might have been able to save Jonathan if he'd kept his wits about him, but in the crucial moment, 
He gave in to his own worst fears and tendencies. He assumed that Lana was the one Jarrell wanted to take, rather than realizing that Jonathan's condition was gonna take its toll. Jarrell wasn't going to take anybody away. He was simply allowing people to live with and die from their consequences of their own decisions. And because of that, because of how much Clark secretly hates his true heritage, because of his complete lack of understanding about why Jonathan died, it'll be, I think, a pretty long time before he makes peace with the events of Reckoning. This episode's gonna haunt Clark for a lot of the rest of Smallville's run. Now, kind of move on to other things. Way back when I was talking about Hereafter from the Mighty Season 3, I said, but beyond that, and this is where things get kind of interesting, beyond that, Jordan's precognition is assumed to be absolute. When he sees somebody die, that's it. End of story. Nobody can save him. Nobody. Nobody except Clark. Clark seems to be the lone, sentient agent who can affect somebody's destiny. And that works for me on so fucking many levels. But maybe Mark Verheiden, the writer of Hereafter, should be allowed to speak for himself on this. He was quoted as saying, We were exploring the idea that Clark, as an alien, is different on an almost cosmic scale. And that takes him outside the metaphysical reach of this kid's ability and enabled Clark to prevent things from, from happening that the kid was seeing. End quote. That's continued here. Once again, we see Clark overruling destiny. This has happened before and it's gonna happen again. It was Lana's fate to die on the bridge. Jarrell had nothing to do with it. But Clark has the ability to circumvent destiny. He used his chance to travel back in time to spare Lana her own fate. Yes, he missed the bigger picture, it's true, but this is another instance of Clark's power being bigger, even than destiny. The difference, though, is that this is the first time that Clark's gotten completely bitten in the ass over it. Clark's got to take a lot of lessons away from this incident. One of them is that his powers may exceed the powers of fate, but he's not God. There's a price to pay when he takes his eye off the ball. No, he didn't ask to have these superpowers, but he still has the responsibility to use them wisely. It's not necessarily for the best that Clark overruled destiny. Now, in case I'm being unclear here, Clark didn't consciously choose Lana over Jonathan. He just let himself get swept away with his feelings and his emotions. To whatever degree he had objectivity here, he completely lost it when Lana died in the first timeline. And because of that, he was more concerned with keeping Lana safe in the second timeline than he was in keeping his eye out for any sign of trouble. And in the end, he paid dearly for it. And like I said, the ghosts of reckoning were gonna stick around a long time after credits roll for this episode. Clark doesn't get another do-over. 
And honestly, I think it I think it's pretty unlikely that he'd take advantage of it, even if he had the chance. Because, yeah, he might save Jonathan if he had access to a third timeline, but what's to say something worse might go wrong? I mean, where does it stop? Clark knew when it was time to put down the dice and stop gambling with other people's lives. This could be the one positive lesson that Clark takes from Reckoning. This is life we're talking about here. Clark's at least wise enough to learn his lesson about mucking around with other people's fate. Now, speaking of Jonathan's death, you could say that this is incredibly important to Clark. Jonathan's been Clark's role model, hero, and idol his entire life. Clark's losing his father, one of his closest friends, and one of the few people he's ever been able to be completely himself with. On top of that, Clark knows he's to blame on more than one level here. Clark's desperation to hide from the consequences of his actions back in Season 2 is why Jarrell gave Jonathan powers back in the Mighty Season 3. Those powers are what ultimately killed the only real father that Clark Kent has ever had. Clark views all of this as uniquely his fault. But somehow, I don't think Jonathan sees it that way. Jonathan raised a great young man in Clark. He provided for Martha as best he could. He protected his family against some pretty overwhelming odds. He just won an election that, by all rights, should have gone to the candidate with more billions of dollars in his bank account. He just beat the shit out of that candidate's creepy father. And then he died at home, with his boots on, surrounded by the two people he loves most in the world, and has been always prepared to sacrifice everything for. Jonathan Kent died at the top of his game. He'd won every possible victory. He wasn't faking it when he smiled with pride at Clark before going off into the great beyond. There's some other things going on here, too. Back in Fanatic, Lois was slightly flirty and made barely noticeable googly eyes at Clark, but she goes a step beyond all of that here with this scene. Maybe. Look, I don't know what's going on, but I would be lucky to end up with someone as honorable as Clark someday. As with Fnatic, this is more than just casual friendship for Lois. We've seen a lot of how Lois' views uh, on Clark have softened and thawed out this season, and this is another indication that she doesn't think of Clark as just another hayseed from Smallville. She may not even completely understand all of this stuff herself, but... Lois is starting to think of Clark as a lot more than a roommate, and possibly even more than a friend. It's not much of a spoiler to say that nothing much happens with this for a really long time now. But it's also not much of a spoiler to say, yes, Lois and Clark do end up together. Durr. Who didn't see that one coming? I'm just saying that pairing the two of them up didn't come out of nowhere. When it happens, it'll be organic to who both Clark and Lois are. Some other bits of business here. Chloe's obviously a little threatened by Lana and Reckoning. I think that Chloe was enjoying being the only one outside of Jonathan and Martha who knew the truth about Clark's abilities and heritage. 
she doesn't see Lana joining the club as a completely good thing. Now keep in mind, Chloe's the one who suggested that Clark tell Lana the truth. But it's pretty obvious that she didn't think about what Lana joining Clark's inner circle might mean. It's just interesting, that's all I'm saying. Something else is that in the first timeline, Jonathan and Martha are shocked that Clark told Lana his secret. The last time Clark told them that he clued somebody in on a secret, it was the, well, what my notes say is that it was season two with Pete Ross and the Kent parents both went berserk over it, but that's actually not completely true. It actually happened also in uh, the mighty season three when Clark, basically he got forced into showing Alicia Baker what he can really do. In both cases though, the Kents pretty much lost their shit over it, but that doesn't happen here. First of all, they know that this has been eating away at Clark for a long time now. Clark had to shit or get off the pot. It's as simple as that. A decision had to be made, so Clark made it. Second of all, though, they recognize that Clark's becoming an adult. They haven't kept him on such a short leash in a long time now. He knows what the stakes are. If he felt like telling Lana the truth about his secret, Jonathan and Martha were willing to figure out a way to live with that. Anyway, other stuff. Lexmas made it clear that Lex has the hots for Lana, but Reckoning's the first time he's ever tried making a move on her. True, he was a little inebriated when he tried it in the second timeline, but nevertheless, he tried it. In Vino Veritas and all that. None of this has been all that easy on Lex. Everybody thinks of him as some cocky, self-assured, arrogant, pampered little prince, but truth is, Lex cares a lot about what other people think. Probably more than he ever knew. And he's sick of being on the losing end of everything. In fact, Lex not only resents being thought of as only his father's son, rather than his own man, he's also really starting to resent Clark Kent. You okay? You uh, sounded pretty upset in your message. Probably shouldn't have called. Shouldn't do a lot of things, but I uh, seem to do them anyway. I'm sure you want to get back to the party, so. Lex. I know how hard you worked for this, but I don't think you should take it so personally. You know how many people are cheering right now that the uh, spoiled rich kid lost to some salt-of-the-earth farmer? Well, since when do you care about what other people think? Since I was branded at birth with the sins of my father. Just once, Lana. I wanted to get out from under his shadow, you know? Earn something on my own. Well, consider yourself lucky you never had a father to endure, huh? Um, I think it's best if we talk about this when you're not drunk. See? Now I've hurt your feelings. Perfect. Through this whole campaign, I've managed to alienate everyone I care about. 
I can't lose you two. Lex. Hey. You aren't going to lose me. Yeah, you know, it happened so fast, we never really got a chance to tell anyone about it. Yeah. So after all the lies he told you, you still chose him, hmm? You don't understand. How many times have you come to me, wondering what Clark's keeping from you? Why he, uh, disappeared to Metropolis for months. How he rose from the dead. It's not like that now. Really? Come on. Lana, I know you. You'd never say yes with all the doubts you have. Whatever it is he's been covering up all this time. You know, don't you? Clark isn't hiding anything, Lex. After everything I've done for you, how could you lie to me? Lex knows Clark's hiding something, too. He's always on the scene, just in the nick of time. He always has the perfect bullshit cover story. He's got no poker face whatsoever, and Lex is sick and fucking tired of being lied to by one of the few people he's ever been able to call a friend. And Clark's idea of repaying all of that is fucking things up for Lex whenever and wherever possible. Now, Lex and Clark really haven't been friends since the mighty season three. They had reasons for keeping things from each other back then, and it tore them apart in the end, but the real effects of all of that are only starting to manifest themselves now. Yeah, Lex and Clark had a pretty bumpy ride back in the dreaded season four, but this is where all those chickens start coming home to roost. And Lana's a major part of all of that. Clark's dishonesty has fucked them both over, so at first, Lex doesn't understand how the hell she could ever decide to marry somebody who's lied to her so much. And then, the penny drops. Lex realizes that Clark's told her his secret in the first timeline. Whatever the hell that secret might be, and now Lana's lying to him too. So, Lex has lost the election, he's lost his best friend, and now he's losing the girl he loves to a lying, dishonest jackass who's turning her into a lying, dishonest jackass too, and it's all just too much. Now, I'm not saying that Lex should have reacted the way he did in the first timeline, but he did have reasons to react that way. On that same note, 
Lionel approaches Jonathan with something pretty damning. We're never shown what it is. Ever. I won't spoil what's ahead for the rest of the season, but if you're familiar with goings-on from later this year, you can pretty well guess what Lionel might have had on Jonathan. You can also probably understand, then, why Jonathan beat the piss out of Lionel over it. Last of all, you can probably understand why Lionel crawled over to that wadded printout, or photograph, or whatever that thing was, and stole it out of the loft. In fact, ultimately, I think that's what episode, uh, Reckoning as an episode is all about. Everybody's made choices in the past, or for that matter, a different timeline, that come back in this episode in a big, bad way. By the time credits roll for Reckoning, everybody's lost something. Lana lost Clark, Clark lost his father, Martha lost her husband, Lex lost the election, and Lionel lost his power over another politician. There are no winners here. Now, when Reckoning first aired, I really didn't grasp a whole lot of this. I so wanted the death in this episode to be Lana that I missed the forest for the trees. What I didn't see was that Smallville had pretty much shed its old identity and was starting to become something new. That process starts right here in Reckoning, but it'll be a while yet before you can fairly well say that Smallville officially has nothing in common with what came before. Trust me, don't worry. I'll let you know when we get there, but we're not there yet. For right now, Smallville's mostly recognizable as the show that began with the pilot episode. Just don't get too comfortable with that because it's not gonna last much longer. In any case, the breadth of analysis I've just subject, uh, subjected Reckoning to was lost on me at the time uh, that the uh, episode aired, like I just said. And truth is, I think it's lost on a lot of people even now. It's not hard to find people who identify Reckoning as their breaking point with Smallville. This was a bridge too far for a lot of people who'd stuck with Smallville no matter what up to this point. There is, or was, a contingent of fans out there who wanted more from Smallville's 100th episode than they apparently got from Reckoning. And in some ways, I was among them for quite a while there. I mean, look, keep in mind, it took me a hell of a long time to get over how awful the dreaded fourth season was. Rightly or wrongly, I viewed Lana as the embodiment of all that was wrong with Smallville. And because of that, I truly believed that Goff and Miller killed off the wrong character here in Reckoning. It's only been in the ensuing years that I've been able to see what they were up to in killing off Jonathan. The issue here is that Clark makes all the wrong choices in Reckoning, and because of that, he'll be haunted by his mistakes and poor decisions for years to come. In fact, I think there's a really strong argument that Clark never truly recovers from the events of Reckoning until much later on. But I'll come back to that much later on. Still, I'd like to think that history's been kind to Reckoning. It's easier to see now what Algoff, Miles Miller, 
Kelly Souders, Brian Peterson, Greg Beeman, and all the rest were up to with Reckoning. They wanted a 100th episode that paid off a lot of long-standing conflicts while also setting the course for Smallville's future. By this point, and I'm reading between a lot of different lines here, so I don't want you to feel like I've got some kind of special insight. Everything I'm about to say is just based on research and interpretation, but by this point, I think it was clear that Smallville would continue for at least a little while longer. Now, don't get me wrong, nobody was expecting 10 seasons maybe, but it was clear that Smallville would continue at least until season six. The issue here is that Smallville was originally intended to only go for five seasons. Basically just enough for syndication. But like I said, it was obvious that Smallville would continue to season six and possibly even beyond that. Because of that, a lot of things would have to change. Reckoning begins setting all of that up. Old conflicts were brought to consummation while new conflicts and status quos were introduced. Goff and Miller never intended Smallville to go beyond season five, so they knew they had to create as much room for new characters, new conflicts, and new stories as possible in the time that they had left. I think that goes a long way to, to explaining a lot of what happens next in season five. I'm not gonna get into it here, but there's a pretty clear shift in tone after Reckoning. You'll know it when we get there, but suffice it to say, a lot more changes after Reckoning than John Schneider not being a regular fixture on the show anymore. Anyway. But if you ask me, what I appreciate most about Reckoning is precisely what I originally hated about it. Clark got to experience a moment of happiness with Lana before realizing it just wasn't meant to be. And so this part of the Smallville retrospective in an odd kind of way, it ends as it began, with the lead character realizing that he could live happily ever after with Lana until she dies prematurely, so he makes a really stupid decision. Again, Smallville's been all about putting Lex and Clark on parallel journeys. Back in Lexmas, Lex realized that he could live happily ever after with Lana until he loses her to tragedy. Clark also comes to the same realization and the same bloody conclusion here in Reckoning. They both make different choices based on pain and fear, and in the end, they both suffer for it. So, that's pretty much it for this time. Next time, I'm going to be talking about the episodes Vengeance, Tomb, Cyborg, and Hypnotic. But that's next time. So, for right now... I think that's pretty much it. Bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
secret governmental organization operating behind the scenes. Task Force X. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't. You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out. Or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody screws the wall! Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. 
friends. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.